Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another Nacho Tuesday. And today I have Liz, uh, how do you say it? Is it Wilkie? Wilkie, yeah. Yes, perfect. I'm getting good at this stuff. But uh, <laughs> we have Liz Wilkie from Gusto, and she's their head of economics, uh, the principal economics. Uh, actually, uh, actually, can you explain it? <laughs> Sorry. Sure, I can tell you I'm the principal economist at Gusto. Uh, Gusto has a data and economics research team that they started about three years ago. I've been there about two years, and my job is basically to take all of the data that's on the platform about Gusto's small business customers, up to hundreds of employees, and then sort of put that data out and do original research about small businesses to help people understand what's going on with this really important segment of the economy and also to help small businesses sort of understand the world they're operating in, help founders understand, you know, how the world is changing and what they can do about it, you know, to sort of be more successful and to meet sort of, honestly, these kinds of topsy-turvy times that we find ourselves in. Yep. I read all about it every day. <laughs> uh, so what, what got you into, uh, down this path, I guess, what got you into this kind of a role? So I, um, Honestly, I, I was at LinkedIn before I came to Gusto and I was on their economic graph team, which is a similar sort of group. And I just love the idea of taking all of this data that companies have and turning it into really useful insight, right? So researchers and academics do really important and valuable work, but you know, we can get data with, from, from companies sort of at granular levels and in real time that sort of nobody else can have. And there's just mm -hmm. something so cool about that. So when I got the call from Gusto saying, hey, we need somebody who can help us talk about, you know, the small business economy and hiring and what's going on with them and, you know, remote work and pandemic related stuff. I said, sign me up. It yeah. sounds amazing. I think I have one of the coolest jobs ever. And I just love really helping people to understand what's going on, like businesses and founders, this segment of the economy that drives so much activity, but we really don't know that much about. And businesses themselves, you know, if you've got a 50 person company, you're not spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on like a big consultant to help you think about like your workforce yep. strategy or whatever. Right. And I was like, but we can do that right with the data that we have on the platform. So I um, honestly, the, the opportunity was so good and the work so interesting. Yeah. So you recently published uh, some economic research and you called it The Economy Explained, <laughs> uh, taking a, such a com complex concept and distilling it down for the average business owner. Uh, what were some of the key insights and findings that you found from this research? Yeah. Yeah, we've been doing The Economy Explained for uh, almost a year now. We started late last year, you know, at sort of at the height of 8% inflation and two jobs for every unemployed person. And what we found from small businesses and uh, the people that serve them, like accountants, HR professionals, they said, look, my CEOs are coming to me and they want to know what's going on in the economy and what they should do about it. And they said, but I'm not an economist. I'm an accountant or I'm an HR professional. I just don't know. So we created, we, we sort of realized there was this gap in the market, which is that the economy really in very real ways, right, affects these, yeah. these businesses. Um, but a lot of economic commentary is one for other economists, right? Or, you know, for investors on Wall Street. And so we made the economy explain to say, hey, here are the numbers, but here's what it really means for you. And we do that every quarter. Um, we do it for accountants and we also do it for small businesses. It's public. You can Google it and go to our website and find this week, this quarter, this quarter's release. And so anyway, this quarter, what we sort of found is that the talent market by and large is still quite tight. But it's coming down. I, I think we can talk a little bit about how that is different for tech 
entrepreneurs in this mm. space. And we can delve into that a little bit. Um, but also the interest rates are really, really cranking up. And that's creating a lot of credit crunch, right, for businesses that would go to credit markets. And so we're advising them to sort of really think about their capital spend, try and shore up their cash flow, sort of really preserve, right, the runway and the extra cash that they have on hand so they don't catch themselves sort of flat-footed without, right, the cash flow to pay their bills and then have to go to credit market to get it. And then we're also, I think, just really helping people to think about, you know, pricing strategy and value, especially for direct-to-consumer businesses, where consumers, I think, are really towards the end of the year going to start thinking about, you know, what spend is really necessary, especially as like student loans start to come due and credit card debt is building up, et cetera. So those are sort of the big takeaways for us this quarter from The Economy Explained. And then I'd also like to sort of put a plug. We sort of expanded mm -hmm. that idea. And I'm now hosting a 10-minute podcast every week called the Gustonomics Podcast, which is really about explaining, you know, parts of the economy that are going on sort of really intangible, like approachable ways. Yeah, I like that because a lot of people just kind of understand the economy from like a macro level. They read like a headline, but they don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they just know good or bad. And they kind of uh, reflect their business strategy accordingly. But I like how you're kind of breaking it down and giving people uh, specific insights into to specific actions they can take. Uh, you brought up a great point around raising money right now. Uh, so with you know the interest rates so high, there's a lot of channels that you normally used to be able to go raise money from, but it's really high to get. It's really expensive to get that money now. So you could look at maybe alternative means for raising money. Which you know I'd like to plug uh, one of our partners, Lighter Capital. They do uh, they help fund businesses as well with. Um, with low interest loans based on your uh, actual revenue. Uh, so there's other options out there, but uh, these types of uh, macroeconomic conditions are really affecting small businesses, um, as you mentioned. Uh, what other steps can uh, small business owners take to, to ensure that they're you know, hiring the right talent right now, given these tech trends, uh, that they're raising money when they need to, or should they you know, possibly even wait a couple months to raise money? Yeah. I mean, so let's start with the talent aspect first. I mean, so one, anybody who was in business last year is probably still sort of trying to catch up and figure out what happened. I think tech in particular can sort of breathe a little bit more easily now because um, tech companies in our data have really slowed down their hiring. They're not actually letting go of people at much higher levels than any other company, but they've really slowed down their hiring, right? The sort of whole sector, I think, was a little shook up by the big layoffs that happened earlier this year. And I think lots of tech entrepreneurs are sort of saying, hey, let's take a beat if somebody leaves let's not fill that role just yet, right? Let's wait and see what happens. And I think a lot, it was sort of that showing up in our data that they're really just sort of being a little bit more cautious. The, the good news on that side is that, you know, there are lots of, they have a higher probability of getting somebody into that new seat, right? And really making a good match, right? They can take their time. They can be very intentional, right? Especially when you're a young sort of startup a community, you know, it really matters who you have on your team and who you can depend on. So the flip side of that is that tech entrepreneurs can really take their time and find the right people and the right fit in this sort of talent market where they're just slowing hiring. There are a few more people around and they can really be intentional about who they want to bring on. In terms of, and, and that has like cost implications too, right? So yeah. in terms of thinking about capital and runway, I really just say preserve your capital, right? Don't hire somebody unless you're really sure that they're right and they can drive the business and help you meet that revenue. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, really 
even if you're going for sort of VC or other funds, right, to your point, even businesses that are doing alternative services are thinking like, where's the revenue, right? So I think gone for a while are the days where like you can achieve like big funding levels on an idea, right? You really need to focus on like proving out that concept and getting to some solid revenue numbers, even if you want to do some sort of alternative uh, financials things. And going to a traditional bank, right, is sort of getting harder because uh, bank officers are tightening their standards for loans and they're limiting the amount of credit that you can actually get. So, I mean, sort of any way you slice it, it's going to be harder to get financing. So entrepreneurs who can really sort of focus on what are the revenue outcomes that I can achieve and how do I maximize those in the short term is going to prevent you from having to get as much credit. It's going to make it a lot easier to get more financing right when you ultimately need it. Yeah, and it's a good wake-up call for a lot of businesses too, right? So you should always be thinking this way frugally. Sometimes, unfortunately, you know, macro conditions kind of force you to, but um, it's just you know, a good business lesson of life to kind of carry forward from there. But uh, on the flip side, like you mentioned, there is a lot of great talent in, out in the field right now that's available for a lot of startups and small businesses to pick up. Um, so there's a lot of people that are you know, really experienced and you know, for no fault their own got let go from a company, but mm-hmm. uh, now's a great opportunity to actually bring some of these, uh, some of this talent into your company to help grow your business. Uh, so, you know, on the flip side, uh, be on the lookout yeah, for great definitely. people to, to build your team around. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Great. And so do you see any differences on, on the local regional level, like um, between, you know, hot tech markets like San Francisco, New York, Seattle, maybe some up and coming areas like Austin? Yeah. So I, I looked into this. I mean, so it's actually a lot more regional than it is industrial. Right. Yeah. So and I, I mean, I think that's that's, you know, uh, not unexpected. Right. Given that regional economies are sort of all tied together. The southeast is doing quite well in terms of hiring and economic resilience. Now, there aren't as many, you know, strictly tech companies in the southeast, although, Andy, I think it's probably not a surprise to you or any of your listeners that. Um, the line between what is strictly a tech company and what is strictly just a modern company that uses a lot of tech tools, right? And has like, yeah, exactly, (laughs) right? What's a tech company and what's a real estate business or a realtor or, you know, a a retailer? And I think, you know, that line is getting increasingly blurry. So you don't think about the Southeast as being like a big tech hub, but the economy has been really, really resilient and sort of outpacing concerns of this sort of downturn or for soft landing. What we're seeing, I mean, honestly, San Francisco's definitely a little bit depressed, the hiring in, in the sort of really big tech hubs like San Francisco, Seattle to a lesser extent, right? New York is honestly doing just fine. It's sort of humming along, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seeing sort of a sort of sustained like depression and hiring there. But that's to say that, I mean, that's not the whole tech landscape sort of blew up from COVID, right? The tech companies sort of started to get up everywhere and anywhere, right? That founders wanted to be. And since the expansion of remote and hybrid work, we've really seen, you know, so many new companies are either fully remote from the start Mm -hmm. or they're hybrid, right? And they're willing to hire from anywhere in the region or anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world. And I think that's really sort of, uh, made this distinction between what's a tech hub and and where can tech employment happen like really fuzzy. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, we're finding a lot of great talent, you know, at Nacho Nacho um, in the Midwest, among other places, too. Um, a lot of people realize they don't have to be, you know, in New York City, which I'm at right now, paying New York City prices. <laughs> um, and they could be somewhere nice where, you know, they could work from home and do all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts, I guess, you know, kind of a side question, but 
on on the whole com- commercial real estate space and how does the the effect of a uh, hybrid or remote work affect commercial real estate thank you for such a lovely question uh it was a big question yeah. but first i i want to i want to say i i think new york and sort of high rent places take a lot of guff for being so high rent and it is true that there's a ton of great talent to be had out there i personally like new york i think it's really a matter of choice and lifestyle right i think if you love new york you can now sort of stay and live there and if you don't love new york you now don't have to live there right in order to connect your job to right the place that you are and i think that's the real promise with remote and hybrid work so i just want to say i think new york is a lovely place and i really enjoy it so i feel like we <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of commercial real estate, like there are there are real impacts. Right. And I think the real impact for entrepreneurs and small business startups is what's going to happen to community and regional banks as commercial real estate sort of churns through. So what happens uh, for those of you who for those of your listeners that don't know, you don't sort of do a mortgage on a commercial real estate property for 30 years like you would on a house. You actually do it for seven years. Right. And then there's a big balloon payment at the end of five or seven or 10 years, whatever the length of your mortgage is. And so all of the mortgages uh, for commercial real estate that were financed back in 2015, 2016, 2017, when occupancy rates were way, way up and interest rates were way, way down are now coming due, right? There are these big balloon payments that usually you just refinance them, right? Mm -hmm. But now if you're trying to refinance at 8%, when your occupancy rates are down 20 or 30%, right? Like that's going to be a really big problem for lots of, uh, for lots of commercial real estate mortgages. And so there's this concern that they'll send back, right? Some of the keys, right? Sort of Mm -hmm. like the 2008 jingle mail where people were just sending back the keys to their homes and that a lot of uh, community and regional banks will, will have a hard time sort of addressing this because on their balance sheet, they tend to hold a lot of commercial real estate relative to like big banks, for instance. And so there's this sort of big question about how are they going to meet that challenge? And what does that mean for small and regional banking that a lot of small businesses, especially outside of major tech hubs sort of depend on for financing? Definitely. And you mentioned something about consumer spending as well, too, and a credit card, uh, credit card debts. Um, should small businesses be worried at all about uh, consumer spending slowing down, maybe going into the end of the year? Or I think, I, I mean, I think consumer spending will slow down. Do I don't think that there's strong signal right now that we're going to see some big drop off, big, excuse me, big drop off in consumer spending. I think that we're going to see a sort of a, like long tail landing, right? So consumers have really been defying expectations for the last 18 months. Every yep. economist has been saying, yes, but next month they'll definitely stop spending all that money. <laughs> and consumers are definitely not listening to all the economists who are telling them what they should be doing out in the world. Um, and they're just, you know, they're, they're still seeming really confident and there's still a lot of savings built up from the pandemic and mm-hmm. credit card debt is going up. But credit card delinquencies really are not, you know, we're not seeing big spikes in delinquencies there. And so I think what consumers are really telling us is like, yes, we're putting a lot on the credit card, but we've we're not having any problem paying this off. And I don't think that we are looking at any signs that are telling us that there's going to be some big drop off in consumer spending. But I do think that we're going to see consumers get a little mm-hmm. more cautious right? About how they spend their money, which is why we're encouraging the uh, direct to consumer businesses to really think about value pricing, right? Sort of Mm mid-level, but how can you help consumers really feel like they're getting a lot of the bang for their buck? Yep, definitely. And they also have to consider price changes as well too, right? So once you increase prices, it's kind of 
it's kind of harder to go back from that, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, can you weather the storm as a business or is it time to raise prices? And then, you know, are you willing to stick to those prices? Of course, you could always yeah. do discounts, but, um, you know, it kind of burns your reputation a little bit if you're bouncing yeah. back between pricing quite a bit. Yeah. And if you do that too much, then you're telling your customers that mm -hmm. if they just wait, right, they can expect some discount down the road, right? And then you yeah. can sort of lose your regular pricing strategy. Yeah, that's a great point. So, we mentioned earlier that, that uh, building a team uh, makes or breaks a company. So, you know, what are some of the areas that people could look for talent right now? You mentioned just globally is kind of a good space to look. Um, so it's not just going to San Francisco or New York and finding people there. Um, but what are some other areas that might be bubbling up uh, to find talent? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say I really think that remote work has, again, like blown open the field on where talent can be found. So most uh, startups that have formed since the pandemic, uh, many, many more of them are fully remote or fully hybrid from the start. That fewer than half of the companies in our data set that were fully in person before the pandemic are fully in person still. The vast majority have gone to remote and hybrid work among them. And so I think that has really changed. So most businesses that are remote, they don't feel constrained to their local community, right? They can hire from anywhere. And in fact, the ones that were born remote, they don't have all the baggage, right? Or the processes of doing in-person work. They can sort of start from scratch doing remote work. International work is honestly a, a natural extension of that. And we've seen a lot of businesses that are fully remote they'll hire from anywhere and they're much more likely to have international contractors or international employees. And that they've told us I needed skills. I needed to hire somebody. I needed somebody who had, you know, the mix of experience that I needed. And they've sort of by and large been quite happy with their expansion to international workers too. Tech companies are sort of disproportionately represented in the set of companies that have international workers, either contractors or international employees. And they're telling us we need the skills they have and they're very cost effective and, you know, they really work hard. And we have been sort of asking them what are the sorts of like practices that they are doing in order to get these people on board and to keep them really engaged. That's a great point. So uh, since everybody's moving towards more remote work and, you know, you might be hiring an international even these days a lot more uh, than you would 10 years ago. Um, what kind of perks and benefits can you provide, you know, to these employees, say, if they can't all just go down to the Google office and have like their sleeping pods and all those classic perks sometimes you get, like what other benefits are really trending now according to the data? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the days of sort of selling people on the ping pong pod are probably sort of behind <laughs> us. I think I mean, I mean, I just don't think it's as valuable a perk as it used to be because we just don't work in the same ways. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but what I do think is honestly remote and high levels of flexibility, not just about your location or whether or not you come into an office, but the hours. Right. And the yeah. days specifically that you work. These are really, really valuable benefits. We did an analysis last year of remote versus non-remote workers and the attrition retention benefit of remote work is equivalent on average. There's lots of variability on that, but on average to $11,000 in additional annual pay. It's like, it's a very valuable benefit for folks to have. And it also disproportionately benefits people who need lots of flexibility in their schedule to do caregiving or um, pursue a side project. Right. And so what we're really finding is like this doesn't cost businesses any money, but it really is a valuable benefit to workers and it really helps with talent attraction. And it's not just where, it's the when, right? What days do I work? What hours do I work? 
And then honestly, 401k, it's like the sleeper benefit in terms yeah. of return on investment. Honestly, not as many businesses as you would think offer it. Mm -hmm. And it's relatively cheap compared to health insurance, especially, right? But yeah. lots of other benefits. And because it's like you can stack it right on top of your spouse's benefit or your partner's benefit or another family member's benefit, right? If I... Uh, don't have health insurance, but my partner has health insurance, I can get health insurance through them or through an online marketplace. But that's not true of 401k and retirement benefits. So it has this huge ROI. It's over 100% when we calculated it. And these are benefits that employees really, really value and it really help them sort of build life the way they want to in a way that really integrates work for them. Yeah, that's a great point. I I'm, I'm a big fan of it, of course, myself, you know, I believe that, you know, a lot of people have things going on throughout their life. Um, you know, I don't have any kids, but, you know, I have a lot of friends, family that have kids, and I couldn't imagine <laughs> finding the time for it just yet. Um, yeah. But people need that flexibility, right? Maybe you do have to bring your kid to soccer practice and whatnot. Um, but to me, I, as long as people are getting their work done and they're being effective, I mean, you have to be available during certain business hours of the day to, you know, get meetings when everybody else is kind of collectively together doing the quote unquote nine to five. But, you know, a lot of these people can be getting, you know, project work done at, you know, eight o'clock at night if that works, if that suits them. Maybe they're, they're an early bird. They like to like to wake up early and like myself, you know, I like to wake up early and uh, get a lot of projects done because mm -hmm. sometimes during the day we, you know, we, we get a lot of meetings going back to back and, you know, to get that hardcore work done, like spreadsheet work, you have to sometimes find time outside of those normal working hours to get it done. So, you know, remote work and having that lifestyle really gives you that flexibility to be able to pull that off and actually be a more effective worker because of it. Yeah, it really does. But I think the caveat there is that you can't, sort of expect you, you have to organize that work really intentionally. So yep. one of the things that we found that really differentiates, you know, remote and hybrid companies that are very happy with the experience from remote and hybrid companies that think that their experience is just okay, yep. is whether or not how good their documentation processes are, right? Mm -hmm. How much is documented? Um, and how, um, how much do they intentionally build community by expressing gratitude, having small celebrations, like really taking time to build connection as opposed to just getting the work done, right? Which honestly isn't like a, yeah. what should you do differently? Everybody knows that you, you know, if you want somebody to come work, you should tell them where the printer is and how to fill out the forms and yeah. how to, you know, pursue their work, which honestly is, is really easy when you're in office yeah. and you just ask somebody. Yeah. But it's, it's harder, right. When you're a remote worker, you have to do it more intentionally, yeah. but, and then, and then just sort of taking the time intentionally to, to build that community and that connection is just that people want to know how to do their job and do it well. And they want to feel appreciated. And that's true, whether or not you're in person or hybrid or yeah. remote, it's just that in a hybrid or remote environment, you have to build that differently and with greater intention because it doesn't happen naturally, right? When like when you're in person. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, process is everything, right? So to your point, great documentation. Onboarding is very key for employees. Get them introduced right away to new people, uh, to, to people that have been with the company for a while. Uh, mm -hmm. Set up individual meetings with them, let them start to build rapport and uh, a working relationship with these people, because there's nothing worse than being thrown into the <laughs> thrown into the water and being told to, to swim when you don't know how yet. <laughs> so um, yeah. that onboarding process is key. And I've seen, you know, to your point, may, that make or break the entire remote hybrid work culture yeah. right there. Yeah, actually, onboarding is one of what we call like a critical period where it actually is 
pretty mm-hmm. valuable to bring people on site and to have face to lots of face to face interaction mm-hmm. so that they can learn the culture, ask all the questions, really build those relationships. It just sort of smooths everything. And that's not to say you can sort of let all the other stuff go if you do that. But onboarding is one of those really critical periods where even remote and hybrid companies that think, you know, their experience is very good, really do say it's important to to create that face-to-face time during onboarding. Have you uh, seen any particular tools that people like to use to ensure that there's uh a great communication among team members, organization, you know, file management as well, uh, so that they're all on the same page. I think it matters less which tool you use and a lot more that everybody knows which tool to use and how, how to them. use it. Yeah. Yep. yeah, we're actually developing a new program with Nacho Nacho. It's called Mavens. It's for implementation mm-hmm. specialists. So it's for a lot of these companies that hear about Notion or maybe some of the more mm-hmm. complex products and, and need help onboarding them. Uh, I use Gusto. So thankfully, I know Gusto is really easy to onboard, but uh, there might be some people out there that do need help with that. And that's why I know you guys have partnered with a lot of accounting firms, for instance, Mm -hmm. as a way to kind of help onboard people and show them how to use the product. But uh, to me, it's really intuitive. (laughs) I've been using it for years. So yeah, I mean, not I mean, I not to sort of super plug Gusto since I don't want to be too promotional here, but I think <laughs> they've really in, invested in the user interface to be very seamless and very smooth and and just super human friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of times it's all about yeah re- removing friction and the proper onboarding. You know, I I found Gusto always had a pretty good onboarding for us small business owners actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of built with them in mind. Yep. Uh, so I guess founders that are going down the path of remote and hybrid work, is there any other tips that you would uh, offer these people to make sure that their team members are performing at a high level, um, especially like month six and beyond? Yeah. So, I mean, I, th- I think that one of the things that also really distinguishes folks that are doing remote and hybrid work very well uh, is actually the level of check-in and, and communication and engagement that they have with their managers and with their teammates. So, mm-hmm. You as a manager in an in-person setting might have a check-in most commonly once a week, maybe every other week with your direct report. And it's actually flipped for fully remote companies, right? The most effective cadence is minimally once a week, but more often, right, two or more times a week. And there's a trade-off there in terms of productivity. But what you really get out of that is that remote companies that do this, they get consistent like rebaselining and reorienting and like confirmation of the goals we're working for and how you're doing against those outcomes, which obviously if you're a manager at a remote company, you have to figure out how to make time to do that. Like it does change the management structure a little bit, but it really does help help people feel connected and like they know what their job is. And then the other thing is just, again, really intentional community building bringing people on site or scheduling specific social engagements for them to really sort of build and repeat that community is really important past it past the onboarding process um shows of appreciation especially in a remote team and um just taking the opportunity to really express gratitude is almost as effective mm-hmm. as an in-person meeting and i think the the highest performing companies sort of stack those two mm-hmm. things but we shouldn't forget the little things in favor of the big things because that's actually the glue that holds a lot of remote and hybrid companies together Yeah, it's really the small wins I think uh, I've seen over the years that really motivate people to get to the next step to towards like the the big goal that everybody's trying to accomplish. Um, But it's, you know, sometimes it can be a little disheartening for people, whether it's an employer or business owner, if your goal is a really big one, which we should all have, but it it takes a while and a lot of effort to get there, right? But if you could celebrate those small wins, uh, not only for yourself, but for your team, 
um, that motivates everybody, including yourself and your team to kind of get from that one step to the next, right? It could be mm -hmm. a celebrating a new customer coming on board. Mm -hmm. um, it could be, you know, on your weekly standup, it could be announcing uh, what you're appreciative of, uh, of another employee on the team, like something that they did kind of give them a shout out, if you will. Uh, little things like that. I, I totally agree. goes a long way. Yeah. And I think especially for startups, right, where the environment is so fluid, you're changing mm -hmm. things all the time. There's in fact, in an ideal world, like a fair amount of failure as you're figuring out, right, how to really make it run and make it successful. And so really creating a strong culture is almost like for an athlete, like core training, right, so that yeah. you can be really agile, and you can sort of take what comes at you that comes through loud and clear when we have looked at this research. Great. Um, I guess where, where could founders go to get more data and insights from you? Yeah. So if you uh, Google Gusto data and research, you can find us. You can also just go to gusto.com. There's a link in the drop down. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can subscribe to the Gustonomics podcast um, and hear everything that we talk about there. Um, we also, if you are interested, uh, you can go and look for our economic data tracker, which is it. Um, gusto.com slash data and research. Um, and you can actually look up hiring termination pay rates for your industry and for your area. So you can keep tabs on that. It's updated every single month. And then you can find all of our research there too. Great. And I'll, I'll make sure to post that into the event page up. Oh, Candace has got it. She's on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So everybody, uh, once again, thanks, uh, Liz, for joining us today and uh, everybody else for joining the webinar. Um, really insightful, um, really insightful topic here. And I'm glad to have you on today. Um, if anybody's looking to dive into more and geek out on this economic data, um, feel free to reach out to her or, or check out some of the uh, insights that they posted right there. Um, this is the best source to get it. So, you know, don't be afraid of what's going on in the macro conditions. Uh, just, you know, if you follow the data and you listen to the experts, you can make your own decisions for how you operate your business in this complex environment. Um, once again, Liz, really appreciate you coming on today. Definitely recommend everybody to check out Gusto if you haven't heard of them yet. I doubt you. this is your first time. Uh, hearing about them, but uh, check them out in the B2B SaaS marketplace. Uh, Nacho Nacho is the best place to buy SaaS and you can find Gusto on there as a, as a valued partner of ours. So uh, thanks again. Thanks so much, Andy. You too. And